Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Faceless Fly Fishing in Upland podcast. I'm your host, Timber Pringle, along with my partner, Darcy Toner. Our guest today is Reed Bryant. Some of you may know him from the Orvis Upland and Shooting podcast. He's also a prolific writer with publications in Gray's Hunting Journal, Covey Rise Magazine, and Gundog Magazine, but that's just naming a few. We will discuss Reed's path to working and writing in the outdoor industry and how he landed the dream job at Orvis and his relationship with fly fishing and upland hunting. We'll also talk about picking the right dog for your outdoor lifestyle. We will go into more detail about pointers versus flushers and if pointing dogs can work alongside with flushing dogs, how can it be done? Also, eating sharp tail grouse raw. I want to thank our sponsors today who make this channel possible. Orvis for all your fly fishing, upland, and dog needs. Shop at Orvis.com. And Diamondback Truck Covers, the the toughest truck bed cover in the market, and it looks great too. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Um, We're super excited today to have Reed Bryant on. Um, as you listened to before in, in Timber's intro there, um, he's, uh, works at Orvis and, uh, runs the Orvis Upland podcast and, uh, was a huge inspiration. We listened to his podcast a ton beforehand and, uh, was a huge inspiration for us to start this podcast. So if you don't listen to his podcast, you definitely should. Um, we'll link it in the description. Welcome Reed. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, it's quite a, I, I appreciate the, uh, I appreciate the support. It's awesome to be on with you guys. Yeah. Well, thanks for giving us your time today. So do you want to tell us a bit about like your, your experience working at Orvis? It's kind of how we met you is, is through Orvis. Actually, we haven't met you face to face, but uh, yeah, tell us a bit about your role at Orvis. Yeah, no problem. So my, I have a, I have one of those jobs that people, um, I always say if, if anyone ever finds out what I really do, I'll be embarrassed because I have the best job ever and I don't want anyone to know how good it is, but, uh, no, I'm super, super lucky. So basically long story short, what I do, um, at Orvis is I manage all of our endorsed swing shooting destinations. So Orvis has a program where we identify great places for people to go do the stuff we love to, to do, um, fly fishing, wing shooting, um, you know, uh, shoot like instructional, uh, clay target shooting, et cetera. And so my job is to find great destinations around the world, um, where people can go do those activities specifically on the wing shooting side and the shooting, uh, you know, bird hunting side and, uh, build relationships with those destinations, steer our customers to those destinations and also help promote those operators and operations through Orvis channels to our customers. So that's, you know, basically the gist of, of, the bulk of my job. And then in addition to that, I oversee Orvis does gun sales at uh, four locations currently. So I, on a high level, oversee the the gun business. And then I also host, yeah, the, the Orvis Honey Shooting Podcast. So I get to, um, I get to talk to interesting people and, and convince them to get on a call with me, (laughs) hang out and and learn what I can. So yeah, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good racket I've figured out for myself. I don't know quite how I landed here, but it's like, you know, every day I kind of wake up and I'm like, wow, this is, this is pretty good. (laughs) I don't know how I did this, but it's pretty good. Um, so how did you, so 
kind of where did your like fishing and hunting journey begin? Did you start fishing or did you start hunting first? What was the, how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's a great question. And actually when I look back, um, it really probably all began with fishing. So I grew up outside of Boston, um, kind of suburban area. And my dad was a really good, uh, I would say he was a pretty good naturalist. You know, he was a yeah, business guy and, uh, um, super, super bright, not overly, um, how would I say not, not a, not a super dynamic character, but loved to be outside and loved, you know, he always seemed to know like the birds and just little things that, that were, were all around us. He could identify, you know, knew the flowers, knew a lot of the plants, knew the birds, knew the insects. And so we were outside a lot as kids, my sister and I, and, um, my dad was an angler and a, aspired to be a fly angler, though he wasn't, um, he wasn't particularly adept at it. Like it just wasn't something that he had put a lot of time into. And, and he's not a, uh, how would I say it? Diplomatically, unless <laughs> my dad's listening. He's not a wildly like um sort of physical guy. So the coordination of fly fishing was always a little bit challenging for him, but we did a lot of canoeing and we did a lot of um, just spending time outside and around the water. So I took up fly fishing pretty early from him and just loved it. And it, at, coincident with that i loved the whole i love the whole scene like around fly fishing so i'm i'm in my mid 40s you know this is going back 40 years when it was still you know i got field and stream magazine and i got the old fly fishing magazines and i got the orvis catalog and i you know loved the whole aesthetic of being an outdoor an outdoors person and what that that entailed and a lot of the the cross-pollination as I saw it was a lot of those fly angler types were um were also wing shooters not so much big game hunters but were were bird hunters and there's something about that I can't really tell you like what it was but I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a bird hunter I just there was something about the aesthetic something about the romance of it that just made sense to me and at the same time um I had no access to hunting like I grew up in an area where I guess people probably were hunters bird hunters and otherwise but it wasn't something you kind of talked about it wasn't something i saw when you know guns were pretty taboo and uh i definitely grew up in a non-gun friendly home like my my mom wasn't pro-gun at all and so it was it felt a little bit like a when i think about it now what's interesting is that it was a, a core part of who i wanted to be but wasn't a core part of like what I grew up with. So when I got to, I guess it was later on in my teenage years that I had a friend whose dad hunted birds and I you know, sort of sniffed around their house a lot and asked if I could see his, I don't know, like watch him clean his guns and watch him, you know, pluck birds and watch him do that sort of stuff. And, uh, and he was pretty forgiving and let me, let me see it um, from the outside. But he never offered you know, to take me out. <laughs> I kind of hinted, but he never did. And, uh, and then, and then when I went to college, I had a long roundabout college career, but when I, when I finally landed where I would in fact spend my college years, it was in a really rural part of Northeastern Vermont, really small, um, uh, small school. And a lot of the people up there hunted and fished just as part of, you know, part of their identity as part of their way of life. And there was among that, that group of people, a couple, fellows that really took me under their wing and showed me, um, you know, just taught me about soups and nuts, like everything I need to know from 
habitat to how to shoot to where to go looking for birds to just just kind of how to make it part of my life and uh of course with that we're fishing a lot in school too um so hunting and fishing, i think are, are somewhat aligned in my experience and in my sense of myself so i would say prior to um prior to my adulthood fly fishing was was much more a part of what i did but i also have to say like when i say it was fly fishing and it, it was but it was like going down to the local golf course you know water hazard and catching bluegills for an afternoon it wasn't like wasn't terribly aesthetically pleasing necessarily but i loved it and i loved everything about it and i didn't mind I think, you know catching six inch sunfish for hours i think every good fisherman isn't afraid to throw a fly on a golf course there is uh the golf yeah. courses seem to hold yeah. really good fish all over the world right, right? right. so they don't have a ton of pressure right. on that them. don't have a ton of pressure on them and and <laughs> right. uh you definitely get tips from people that have been on the golf course they're like oh, i've seen these huge fish they're in this little pond and Yep. Uh, You're like, uh, uh, what gonna, hole was that at? What hole was that at? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I'm, not, I'm not afraid to say right. that, I, no. that I've snuck on a few golf courses and casted a few fish in the past, for sure. Uh, oh, yeah. And there's typically not a whole lot to get tangled in in your back cast. And it was pretty forgiving, you know. So it's like, yeah, walking up a manicured, you know, rough to the edge of this pond and, and catching fish there. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was definitely how it all how it all began. But, um but definitely evolved over time for sure. And certainly since I've been at Orvis, you know, the, the world's opened up a lot for me and my opportunities. Um, so w- what was the purpose of going to school? Like what was your, what was your end goal when you went to school? Was it to work oh, at man. Orvis? Boy, <laughs> no, I mean, you're, you're in education. So you'll probably appreciate this. I have a, and I could, you're going to have to like get out your little shepherd's crook and reel me back in if I get too, <laughs> too going off in the weeds. But, um, but I, so the, it actually kind of goes hand in hand. Like when I grew up, I had a very, I was very fortunate to have a very good classical education. Like I, I went to, um, went to schools around Boston area and, and pretty much into private school my whole life and, and had um, a really rigorous early education. But when I think back on that and where that was going to lead me in my life and what I wanted to do, that was never a part of the narrative. Like no one, you know, people would ask you like, Oh, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I, I remember being a little kid and like people asking me that. And I would look around and see who were the grown ups that I saw that were, I don't know, just had kind of a cool lifestyle or like, yeah, you know, seemed to have the means to, to do cool things. And so it's basically people that were doing pretty conventional, um, you know, high, like, uh, basically making a lot of money doing something. So I remember literally for years, people, when I was like in grade school and people would ask me what I want to be when I grow up. And I was like, Oh, I'll be a, you know, a real, uh, real estate developer or I'll be a (laughs) investment banker or whatever, you know? And I was like, I didn't know what that meant. I just knew that like those guys had cool cars and whatever else. So it didn't, uh, my early education wasn't about ever. It was about achievement and it was about accomplishing things, but it was never, I never saw like the end goal in mind. And honestly, when I went to college the first time around, it took me a while to get through college. Um, I went to a really, really nice, wonderful private school here in, in uh, Vermont. But when I got there, all of a sudden, what had been positioned as, as sort of the hurdles I had to clear every step of the way through my early education to get into a good college, 
I knew how to, I knew how to accomplish those goals and I knew how to clear those hurdles, but no one had ever said like, but what are you interested? What do you love? What are you excited about? So when I got to college and all of a sudden people were saying to me like, what do you want to study? I had no, no idea. And it was paralyzing. It was like, I don't even know what I like. I don't know what I like to do. And I remember I did a, um, so after my first semester in college, I took a semester off and did a, um, like an outdoor education semester in uh, Southern Baja, California and Mexico. And um, it was there that for the first time in my life, I was learning skills that I could immediately apply and I could apply them in an environment that just was absolutely amazing to me. Like being outside and learning how to, I mean, the silliest things, like learning how to tie a knot to make your tarp not fly away, you know, and doing it really well and doing those simple, really linear tasks just totally opened my eyes to a different way of learning and a different way of identifying skills that I really wanted to have. And that really transitioned or translated for me into doing a lot more along the lines of, of, um, particularly at that time it was fishing because it was like, I could go, I remember for my 18th birthday, I got a, a gift from my parents of a, a fly casting lesson. And it was the first time anyone had actually taught me how to cast a fly rod properly. And it was like a revelation. I, it couldn't have been more, I don't know, just inspired to like, this is something I want to learn to be good at. This is something I want to do really well. And so it was things like that that kind of led me to a very different type of college. And I worked for a while and sort of got my feet under me. But, um, wound up going to a college in this little place in, in northeastern Vermont that I mentioned that was really almost more of like a commune, for lack of a better <laughs> way of putting it. It was really small. I mean, there was like my graduating class from college was 12 students and we went to school year round and we grew a lot of our own food and we cleaned our own dishes and we cleaned up our own dorm and we worked in the woodlot and we hunted and fished and we, you know, you could bring back fish or fish out a bird and like, you know, go to the college cafeteria and like cook it and it was stuff like that it was really just a very different way of of learning but it it led to my um belief that I still hold and this will probably sound really somewhat privileged in the way I put it and I don't mean it to be like that but I'm a real believer in you can do anything as a career and you can do anything really really well and make a living or make a livelihood out of it, but you have to know that you love it and you have to be willing to, you know, take your lumps along the way and make some sacrifices to make it happen. And so when I left college and I had you know, bounced around a little bit, went to trade school for a year, did some other things, but that idea of being um, kind of living my truth was really, really important to me. So I went into a career in outdoor education, which I did in part because I, had seen the benefits in my own life, you know, of, of doing, you know, hands-on learning with kids was, it just made a lot of sense to me because I was so inspired by finding that way of learning later in life and, and pursuing that through my college time and, and a little bit after. But at the same time, I had this feeling that I needed to put myself in an environment where I could also indulge in the passions that I had and get, get good at the skills or the crafts or the endeavors that I, that I really felt to be just important for me and who I was. And that was largely at that time hunting and fishing. So I, you know, I found this career working um, 
an experiential education living on a working farm where we taught little kids about farming and agriculture and food and, and work, you know, the beauty of, of manual work. And I was working, literally working on the farm every day, but working with kids. But I also was in a, in a place and on a schedule where I could nip out for an hour here and there um, in bird season and, and, you know, have my dog with me during the day. And I could go down to the Creek at the bottom of the hill on a, you know, on a summer night after working through the day and I could go catch trout down there for a couple hours. And again, it wasn't, it wasn't like great fishing or great hunting, but it was available and it was a part of my everyday. And that to me was really, really important. And, um, and somehow, uh, again, I think in large part, almost, almost I was guided by a, uh, certainly a degree of privilege in that I, that I was able, and when I say privilege, I don't mean like I had tons of money because I was broke, but I had <laughs> the, uh, there, there the were no external factors that were made. Yeah, it was there. And I was dedicated to living a life where I had access to that sort of stuff, even if that meant making no money and kind of scraping by and not being able to fix my car when it broke. But the the other outweighed that. And then um, that translated, it's kind of a longer story probably than you want to hear, but that translated into when I went to make a, a change, when I got to a point in my career in education where it was time for me to just to do something different and kind of scratch that itch because I'd really wanted to go all in in the, in the outdoor industry and see if I could make a career of some sort for myself, be it in hunting or in fishing. And I didn't really know at the time what it would be. I, I kind of just had this blind faith that I could figure out how to do it. And I think, again, this may come off sounding really bad, but I, I, I think that if you believe if you believe that stuff is possible for you and believe that it's out there for you, you kind of find a way to make, to manifest that reality for yourself. And I, you know, I got it in a big way. Like I was in the right place at the right time and got this incredible job, but I just was, I was fortunate and I was also dedicated to a certain way of living my life that, um, I was willing to make some sacrifices to make that happen. And, and it just, the stars aligned for me and I got really lucky. So, so Kind of a kind of a philosophical way of explaining. It's like you put yourself in the right place with the right set of skills, and you know it was a bit of luck and you know a bit of you know dedication all at the same time, right? Yeah, where hard work meets luck. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's like fertile ground, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you put yourself in fertile ground for whatever it is you want to grow, you know, it it tends to grow. But I'll I'll tell you this just as a quick segue, and and I don't want to get too over-focus on, you know, my education. But when I was in that, the first college I went to, Middlebury College in Vermont, the second time I was back on campus, I was really struggling and I was just having a hard time. You know, I was a 19-year-old kid and I was like, I don't, it just isn't, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know what, what I'm, why I'm here. I don't know what to study. I don't know what to make my life look like. And uh, I went to the counseling department just to talk it through with a counselor. And I remember the woman I spoke to, so so wonderful that she did this, but she, um, she said to me, what, what would you do if you could do anything, if you could be anything, what would it be? And at the time, and I don't even know really why this was what I was focused on, but I was like, Oh, I'd be a, I'd be a farmer or I'd be a wooden boat builder. And she was like, um, we don't offer that here. (laughs) You know, we don't (laughs) have that. And I was like, and I was like, okay, well, note to self, they don't have that here. And then she was like, so what do we have here to offer that, that you love. And I was like, I don't think really anything. I don't know. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not seeing it. And she's like, 
then don't stay. Go figure out what you love and go figure out how to learn about it and then go figure out how to do it. And that's like what a teacher should be telling you, you know, and I, and I, I think that that was really pivotal for me and, and sort of set my course in a lot of ways um, that fortunately I was able to, to, to have that support, you know, getting out on, on my own two feet and uh, yeah, just super lucky in a lot of ways. Um, so, so you started writing as well, right? Was that kind of how you first started to get into like working in the outdoor industry was through writing? Yeah, that was definitely like definitely the way that I found my um, path in. So the writing thing was interesting. Like I grew up, as I said, in a very structured kind of classical education and we learned, you know, I wrote more five paragraph essays than I care to think about, but we learned really pretty sound, um, writing skills and we learned we read critically a lot and I read a lot and reading for me always was my um kind of my escape you know I was sort of a nervous kid and and when I you know had a dentist appointment or I had something that I needed to escape from sort of remove myself from because I was scared about it I would read and so I'd read and reread and reread and I loved reading outdoor stuff you know reading fishing stories or reading um you know, even hunting stories that I didn't really know what hunting looked like. And I loved reading stories about animals and dogs and whatever else. So I read a lot. And then when I, um, I never, I never aspired to be a writer. It was never easy for me to write and it still isn't. But when I went to grad school in 2008, I went to grad school and got a master's in education. And during that year, <laughs> it's a pretty funny story, actually. I, I was so nervous about being in grad school and having had a fairly non-typical college career, I was really nervous about my ability to, to just get through academically and just didn't have a lot of self-confidence in, in my ability to, to, you know, achieve at a kind of higher education level because I just hadn't done it. I hadn't really proved that I could. And it'd been a long time since I'd been in school. So I picked my courses based on like what I thought would be pretty easy <laughs> so it was pretty funny actually i took like i don't know like children's literature like adolescent literature and sort of all these courses that were just like oh i know how to read kids books like shoot this dream come true so i'm kind of going through that and then there was a half a semester writing course that was um taught by uh the woman that ran the undergraduate um writing program at the 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 school i was at and she kind of let us just write like it wasn't really about you know learning about education human development psychology but she kind of was just like whatever just pick a an evocative object or a moment or something and write a story about it so i found myself writing about um you know hunting and fishing and farming and the stuff that i had done and she you know this was a woman who had no context for any of that was like this is great like you feel it seems like you're really passionate about this you love this stuff this is like let it rip, keep going. So she enabled me to keep exploring those topics and gave me the confidence, gave me the support, I guess you would say, to say like, you're, I remember her quote, um, Nancy Summers was her name. And she would always say like, you're a writer, like you are a writer. And just to have someone say that to me, I was like, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not a writer at all. Like that's not at all what I do, but it gave me enough um, confidence to kind of start looking out and saying like, well, what can I do with this? Where can I put this stuff? Could I, could I get any of these things published? Like, is that even something that I could see myself as doing? And, you know, I think to, in parallel, again, to frame it when I was growing up and even at that point, even now, you know, I looked at the people that were 
writing for hunting and fishing specifically, they were the pros, you know, in, in, in an era before, really before social media was, was pervasive and, and in an era when guiding, um, you know, the, the pros were out there guiding and they had the chops and the skills and the sort of boots on the ground to, to, to be exceptional at the craft or whatever the craft was that they're delivering, be it life, be it hunting, be it shooting, be it whatever. There was this whole other league of people that were writing about it. And sort of my perception was the pros out there are John Gierak and our, you know, um, I don't know, Tom McGuane, or I'm trying to think who are other people that I read a lot of their stuff. I mean, fly fishing more than anything. So it was like, I loved Gierak stuff and I loved, um, oh man, boy, I'm drawing a blank. I'm like, That's who okay. else I was reading yeah. on? I'd have to look yeah. at my bookcase, but it was, you know, all these writers that were just so, they just seemed so knowledgeable and so experienced and everything else. And so from a very much like an ego driven standpoint, I knew I didn't have the skills. I knew I wasn't an exceptional traveled, um, learned fly angler. I knew I didn't have the, the background in like entomology or tying or any sort of one skill, but I knew that as a writer, you could write about it and, people sort of took you seriously. And to me, my, you know, my, my fragile ego was like, Hmm, <laughs> this could be, you know, sort of like a shortcut. People might take me seriously if I get some stuff published. And that was really, I mean, it sounds so crass and so superficial, but that was the motivation for trying to get stuff published. And when it worked, when I started to get some traction with getting some stuff published, it was like the biggest, the biggest adrenaline rush and like affirmation almost in a, like when I think back on it it was almost like probably a psychologist could explain this to me better but it was so affirming to have stuff um accepted purchased published that it was like a drug like I couldn't get enough of it so it was like okay I gotta I gotta keep doing this I gotta keep <laughs> yeah, telling these yeah. stories and you know, whatever you can, you can look at that. And I do look at it and think about the um, purity of that motivation. And I can think about whether that's good or bad, but at the same time I was writing about stuff I loved. And I think that alone just made me think like, Oh, this is possible. Like I can, I can be a part of this space. And that led me to start thinking about, Hey, how can I, how can I jump in with both feet? and get more experiences and learn this stuff better and, and see the space more extensively, excuse me, extensively or more clearly. And that's what led to my, who, who, where did you get published first then? Who was the first one to publish your, your... (laughs) so the funny, the funny story. So my very first piece of published work was a piece called the work of rocks. And it was all about stone walls. And it was in the small farmer's journal, which was like a, um, (laughs) like a little, it was, it was just that it was a small farmer's journal. It was like a, uh, you know do you have it uh, still sort of like a oh yeah totally course, no yeah, but it was yeah. like this mom and pop thing and they and they sent me a um uh, an acceptance letter of the piece and they're like we'll pay you 25 dollars and i was like what 25 dollars like that's crazy i don't get paid for anything like yeah, i was yeah, making yeah. like no money at the time so i was like sure that'll get me you know a couple six packs of beer and i'll be happy yeah, and then exactly. i sent them another piece that they took and uh they they're like we'll take this too and we'll pay you twenty dollars and I was like at this rate you know pretty soon I'm going to be making zero dollars or like owing them money so that was a little perplexing but I sent a piece about duck hunting to Gray's Sporting Journal at the time you guys probably know Gray's yes. I don't know how available it is in Canada but you must know Gray's yeah so yeah, you can get it here yeah, yeah. you know back in that yeah it's a great beautiful magazine it's gone through a lot of um, 
sort of gone through an evolution, but when I was growing up, Gray's published, it was less how-to and it still is less how-to and more about like travel and stories, essays, poems, you know, about the, the outdoor experience. And then they also at the time were getting like really good writers. Like they were, you know, it's people like, um, oh man, looking back. I mean, if you, you like, uh, Annie Prue, like Pulitzer Prize winning, like real, you know, um, deep Bodio, like people that were really legit writers were getting published in there. So I sent, I looked at their submission guidelines and said like, send, you know, send submissions to editors day at Grace Morning journal or whatever. And at the time the editor was a guy named Jim Babb, this great fishing writer. And I sent a piece off and I didn't hear back. And I was sort of like, oh, I knew this was crap. Like I knew I was not that good. I knew, you know, the writing was on the wall. Who am I? I'm just a guy that gets 25 bucks for writing about rock walls, you know? And, uh, and so I looked back on their submission guidelines and it said somewhere in there, we read every submission and we always respond. It usually takes up to three months for a response. And it was like five months, six months, seven months. And I hadn't gotten a response. And I was like, I wonder maybe they just didn't get it. And I think at the time, I think you were still sending like hard, like snail mail, hard copies of, of the piece of manuscripts. And, uh, so I resubmitted and didn't hear anything. It wasn't really anticipating that I would. And then I got a letter back from them saying, we'd like to, we'd like to buy your piece. We can't guarantee that we'll publish it, but if we do, we'll pay you $800. And I was like, are you kidding me? You like, not lottery. only was that, yeah. The, now we're talking. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, and again, not only like the affirmation more than the money, you know, it's just like, I'm going to be in league with these people that have been my heroes. Like, that's so crazy to me, but also that, I mean, again, I was making, you know, as a young guy, I don't know if this is like good thing to do is like put out how much you're made, but I mean, I was making like 10 grand a year. So you know, I had a young family and we had room and board, so we were fed and cared for, but, uh, but I mean, $800 is like, crazy money so so to me at the time it was like this could also be a, another means of of um you know an income and let me do this thing that i want to do and the more pieces it's like a snowball you know you start you get one you get another you get another and um and you get rejections and you deal with that and you do all that stuff but as it gains momentum if you kind of keep banging your head against the wall eventually you make a hole in the wall or you break your head i guess but uh so your but first, I so your to, first um, submission got published is what you're saying so you one pitch one hit at grays yeah yeah that's yeah that's, and that was that was pretty cool have you have you had a chance to meet any of the people that like you uh inspired you to write like, yeah uh and and in a way that's been the orvis um the thing that i still can't i still kind of pinch myself because when i got the job with orvis all of a sudden like I had a backstage pass, you know, I could go meet all these people. And a lot of them, you know, it was kind of, it wasn't necessarily at first, um, the, even some of the other writers that I even thought would be accessible to me. It was more like the editors, you know, these guys that have been reviewing my work. And I think that it's worth noting too, like when I, so again, will sound sort of more philosophical, but when I was, when I was growing up, in and in school i felt as though i had a pretty good how would i say to to be successful i kind of knew how to play the game and i knew that i could 
curry favor with people. <laughs> Sounds awful. Boy, I'm maybe I'm painting myself to be such a jerk. Uh, I'm not this bad a person. Uh, manipulator. Ever, Anyways, go on. Like, <laughs> yeah. No, but I could I could work. You know, like with teachers or whatever, I could do the stuff I had to do to get them to give me a good grade. And that might have meant doing extra credit. It might have meant like going and meeting with them and saying, like, what do you really want from me in this essay or whatever? And they, you know, if you put in that extra legwork sort of interpersonally, yeah. you could you could make the product you were delivering kind of meet the needs of the evaluator of that product. But when you cold send a submission to a magazine, they don't know you. They don't give a crap about you really one way or the other. They just want a good product. And so to have my, my work evaluated on that level was terrifying because if it was bad, they would just say like, sorry, not good enough for what we're trying to do. But if it was good enough, it was like, I didn't convince you that it was good enough. It, this is standing on the sheer quality of the, of the product. And that again, to me was like really, um, affirming and inspiring and so when i started to meet these folks it was really cool because it was like prior to meeting them the editors anyway and, the, and some of the other writers that were that were commenting maybe or just giving feedback on my work i didn't i wasn't they they didn't have to like me they had to look at what i was doing and they had to tell me if it was good or bad and that that kind of leveled the field in a in a scary but unique way for me and so then as I, you know, then I got into the industry, got to meet some of these people and got to meet some of the people that I'd read articles about and got to meet people like, I mean, shoot, like Tom McGuane, like Ben Williams, like, um, uh, I actually never met Jim Babb, who was the editor at Grace, who's one of the best editors out there, but the guys at Shooting Sportsman Magazine, Tom Rosenbauer, I mean, shoot, like going to work at Orvis and like, there's Tom Rosenbauer sitting at a desk, you know, a few cubicles away. And I was like, I thought this guy sat on a, thrown somewhere yeah, in a yeah, palace, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know built yeah. of I, whatever but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I would have to see and like um, i just yeah i just want to say that no the first time go i got to meet tom like he knew who we were because we had been doing stuff with orvis and i was like oh this guy knows who we are like that's so right <laughs> like it's such a like affirming thing you know what i mean like it's ridiculous like you know, he's just another guy, right? But, you know, he's definitely, definitely idolized. I was going to say an yeah. icon in the fly fishing industry, yeah. for sure. Yeah, definitely an icon, oh, yeah. And 100%. Like, yeah, and that, and that, oh, God, no, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. Go ahead. No. No, 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 go ahead, go ahead, <laughs> yep. Uh, I was just going to say, yeah, I mean, meeting a guy like that, having grown up, literally grown up with, like, you know, all of those Orvis Guide to books and, like, whatever, I mean, it was incredible. And it, and then, and so having some of those experiences, you know, I'm still such a fanboy in so many ways. And I, you know, in my current work or like talking to you guys, I mean, like being on this podcast or like talking to you, I mean, I see, I'm still very much impacted by sort of the perception of, of, um, you know, there's people out there that are kind of moving the space forward and that are really visible and that, that you see in magazines. I mean, even the Perkins family, like, you know, going to the office and, you know, sitting down and like share, having lunch with Dave Perkins. It's like, I've seen this guy in the Orvis catalog since I was five, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's like, so a lot of that stuff was really, really, um, it was just wild. And it came at me so fast. It was like, I was a kid 
guy, whatever you mean, you know, young man working on a farm in rural Massachusetts, working with kids, like goofing around milking cows and like hunting and fishing out the back door for small trout and like an occasional bird that I was able to, to knock down to then all of a sudden going and kind of being at the table with these people that, that were, you know, royalty in mm-hmm. my mind, in some ways. So like, it was crazy and it's still crazy. Like I find myself in these environments where I'm looking around the room or I sent a note. I actually wanted to get um, John Girak on my, my podcast. Cause I knew he had hunted a, a you know, fair bit over the years. And, uh, and to be able to like send that guy an email and get a response, I was like, Whoa, yeah, I yeah. didn't think that would be possible. You know, this, this guy's a legend, but um, ultimate storyteller. Yeah. It's yeah. weird. <laughs> oh, so good. So mm-hmm. good. Love that guy. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So it's been interesting for sure. Um, so, uh, I was gonna say, I'll just totally change the subject. I know you got a new puppy, uh, I think it was last year. <laughs> so how's that working out yep. for you? Uh, how's that working out? This is one of my great, um, I feel like I'm also harping on my insecurities. One of my great insecurities, one of my other great insecurities in life is that I've written a lot about dog training. I know a lot of really good dog trainers. I've been around a lot of great dogs and my dogs are not great <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I know why and I know that it's my own fault but um the pup Lulu she is an English Springer and she's a goofball and she um I'm gonna qualify what I say by giving you a little bit of backstory so we live in in southern Vermont in a pretty just a small town kind of a quasi-rural town when COVID struck, um, yeah, we, my younger daughter was clamoring for a puppy and I wanted another gun dog. We have an old dog who's kind of deaf and, and just in retirement. And then we have a middle-aged, um, Springer who's had all sorts of problems and health-wise and just has never really, never really been able to work. I feel terrible for the guy. He's just had a lot of health problems that haven't made him a great, made him able to be a good, good gun dog that I can help with a lot. So we wanted to get another pup and I wanted to get another gun dog. And so we got a kind of settled on the springer, got the pup. And I had just high hopes of like how structured the upbringing of this puppy was going to be and how we were going to train constantly and do all this stuff. And right about that time, um, my wife's best childhood friend because of COVID and housing issues wound up moving in with us. And she's one of my favorite people in the world, but like has no ability to, to like create structure for a dog so (laughs) as much as i'm like it's like you know it's like the pendulum swing she's with me and i'm trying to put her through the paces of healing and place board and this and that and uh and our friend susan is just like woohoo you know anything goes eat whatever you want sit wherever you want jump on whatever you want do whatever you want so it's been a a bit of a schizophrenic experience for this puppy but she's um she got out this fall a fair bit with me here and there and got to some good wild bird exposure. I wouldn't say she did great. We have some work to do this summer just to rein her in. The big thing with her, this is a <clears throat> problem that I think, um, I don't know if I just keep getting really like hot flushing dogs. This is the problem with the older dog too, but uh, she ranges a lot further as a flusher than I'd like her to. And she's really fast. She came from field trial lines, which, um, which didn't really worry me, um, but just the individual dog she is, I want her working a lot tighter in the covers that we hunt than she does. So, you know, she's getting out to 50 yards, 60 yards, and for a flushing dog in grouse cover, that's just too far. And so what I have to do with her now is is rein her in and just get her 
gravitating more towards me, you know, sort of saying like, I have to key off him and stay closer and just kind of create that, that distance that I want her at. And I know how to do it and I know I can do it. Um, but I have yet to do it. So it's like, that's the, that's the work that lies ahead, but she's a sweetheart and she's a goofball and she's great in the house. And, um, you know, she's great with our family. So she's our, a, our Brittany right now is sitting here biting the bottom of the chair, which she never does, she but, never somehow, does but somehow she knows that we're not paying right. attention to her at, right at this moment. And she's decided that this is the right time to start biting the bottom of the chair. So we know, yeah, well, we, and no matter how, it seems like no matter how much you work, work you do with them, they're still, they're, they're still an animal, right? So they're still going to yeah, kind of yeah. pick and choose when sometimes when they want to, when they want to be good and when they want to be bad. For sure. <laughs> she like never bites yeah. or chews shoes or nothing like that. So yeah. it's kind of eh, out of character for her to be like this, but yeah. yeah, she knows she's not the center of our attention right now. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so, right, how, so right. how, and I think that that's go ahead. Oh, good. <laughs> so how, so how old is the dog? Your dog? Did you say? Lulu is oh boy. She's, she might be 18 months or so now. Oh, okay. They're about, so like a, a year and change. And I'm definitely at a point that she should be further along in her training. But at the same time, you know, I think one of the things that I've learned and sort of come to, um, come to grips with, and maybe this is more of a concession or like trying to make myself feel better about the lack of good work I've done with my dogs over the years. But, um, we had before we had kids we had um Brittany's and and uh they were they were dial I mean we worked a lot with um one dog in particular who who didn't he died yeah he got hit by a car unfortunately but uh um but he was just so he was a machine and we worked with him constantly and I think there's a reality too to just where you're at in life and what you kind of want out of the dog. And the reality is, you know, I travel a lot in the fall. I'm not home a lot. I don't get to hunt my own dogs as much as I wish I did. And so, so as much as I know what it looks like to have a really, really, really dialed gun dog and to have a dog that just can go out there and just pound it day in, day out, find birds, just be a machine. I also know that I'm probably not going to have that dog anytime soon. Just, I don't, have the wherewithal to put the time into a lot of the year you know our dogs are family dogs and they they go out and they go swimming with us and they go ride into town with us and they do all this stuff and the reality is that you know i think we've um recognized that some of the sloppiness in the gun dog training that we've done you know it can you sort of have to look at where you're at and what it what the end result of the training is going to be and so you know to have dogs that are decent enough in the woods that, that we have a good time together. But, you know, I w I'd be lying if I didn't say our dogs also get taught how to like, you know, roll over and play dead and do mm -hmm. weird things. And that, you know, it's just like, it's all engagement with them. It's just different sort of for different outcomes. So, so you went from, they're a, silly. I don't so know. you went from a pointer to a flusher or like you originally started uh, out yeah. like your first dog was pointers. And now you've gone to flushers. How come? Why, why did you make that choice? So, Great question. And one that I've thought a lot about. So I love Britneys. Like I think Britneys are just beautiful, awesome dogs. And the people that I looked up to as, as hunters had Britneys, like it's kind of an, there's like a pretty good cadre of new England grouse hunters that run Britneys and, uh, you know, Ben Williams had Britneys and the guy that was my mentor up in Northern Vermont had Britneys. So Britneys were like the dog for me, you know, it's just like what I, 
the picture I wanted to paint of myself as a hunter included um, American Britons primarily, but uh, we had Britneys. Um, they were awesome. They definitely did what I wanted them to do. And then my wife got into hunting um, definitely in sort of later in life and uh, really wanted a dog that was going to key into her. And she had a being, I don't know if this is good or bad, but, but I knew that it would be a challenge just in our dynamic, if I was like weighing in too heavily on how to go about being a bird hunter. So she sort of went and found other friends or other people to, to have as mentors and people to go hunting with early on, just kind of learn the ropes. And not to say we didn't do it together, but you know, I didn't want to be that like partner that's like, Oh, do it this way. Oh, you didn't do it right. Oh, you, you know, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want that to be the, the nature of our, of our dynamic kind of going out in the woods together. So she had a friend, we have a shared friend, but she spent a lot of time with a guy um, who used to be the uh, commissioner of fishing game in Vermont. He was a big Spaniel guy. He had Cocker, I guess he only had one Cocker, but he has really good field trial Springers. And he hunted with my wife, Kim, quite a bit. And she got to know those dogs well and just fell in love with the Springers. And that's kind of what led to us getting a Springer. And I was really like, whatever, flushing dogs dumb like i don't want one of those i'm you know breaking <laughs> my whole life i want to be like you know but then i actually went down in uh again through orvis we had some good relationships with uh with springer folks down in in upstate new york in the hudson valley people that jerry cascio is a good friend of mine is in the hall of fame for uh for um he's in the in the field trial hall of fame and then he has dogs that have been national champions hall of fame dogs that uh that that were springers and i watched him working with springers and was super just like, Oh, this is cool. Because a lot of what we see at home around where I live is we have rough grouse and woodcock are primarily what we're hunting here. And the covers are small and I like hunting small covers. I like being able to get into, you know, a few acres and see if there's a little flight of woodcock in there. Cause you might find, you know, you might find five birds sitting in there and for us like to, to move five birds in an afternoon or in an hour and a few hours that's pretty good so i like having small covers and what i realized with the britneys even close working britneys it took them a long time particularly on grouse to learn how to handle grouse like grouse around here are so skittish they don't they don't hold you know woodcock of course are great but they don't hold they run they bust out so you could put a dog down in the you know, sort of front part of a small cover and any bird, you know, if that dog's moving fast, any bird that's going to get up is probably going to, you know, bust ahead of the gun. And frankly, I wanted to do some shooting. So knowing that if I reward, you know, if I, if I affirm busted birds, if I have a pointing dog that's busting birds and I'm shooting those birds, it kind of confuses the, you know, the psycho, like what are, what's, what's the game here? What are we doing? So Basically, I was like, you know, if I'm if I'm running a pointing dog, but tempted to use it almost as a flushing dog anyway, except when it happens to pin a bird or happens to, to have a bird that's going to sit tight, maybe I should just get a flushing dog that works close and we can sort of dip in and out of these small covers and, and get it done. And also, my Britneys never retrieve. And I, you know, I like to hunt ducks and I like to do little potholes, jump shooting and stuff. So it was kind of like, oh, okay, maybe maybe springers do make sense. And then, um, you know, we got a couple of them and, um, here we are, but I think there's, there's probably more Britneys in my, in my future. And I, you know, when I focus on fudging dogs, I kind of miss pointing dogs. And then when I go, uh, you know, you, you, there's not enough 
not enough hours in the day, probably not enough years in a lifetime to have all the dogs you want. But, uh, but yeah, that's where we're at now. But I see, I see Brittany's in our future at some point. Do you think again, you, like there's always the belief that you can't hunt both together, like, or it's bad to hunt both of them together. Do you think that's, do you think that's true? It's a great question. And it's something that I think, no, I definitely, I definitely think you can hunt both together where I got into trouble is again, being somewhat sloppy and being not particularly diligent about early training like one of the things that happened with our first springer was we would run him with our Brittany when he was a pup and that really got him you know just running when I say running just like taking him out you know when he was a little baby and running around in the field and so he would see that that pointing dog get stretching out and he would want to be with the other dog so his range got big way too fast like he he sort of learned that oh okay well a dog is supposed to be out this far away from the people versus continually being solely focused on us and part of that was just like by necessity you know we're going out for a walk we're not going to like leave what we should have done was like one dog at a time and worked on certain things and done all that but we were kind of like oh we're just going for a walk we'll just let the dogs run and so you can definitely run them together but you just have to instill the expectations and the boundaries and the clarity of, Me, of what you not want to train them together. Train them you know. separately. Yeah, but train them together. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because right, yeah. so, our Brittany um, doesn't yeah, retrieve no, either. She retrieves sometimes. Mm, yeah, selective retrieving. If, yeah. if, if, it's, if the bird's wounded, she'll retrieve. Yeah. But if the bird's yeah. like yeah. stone dead, and, no interest. Yeah. But, yeah. The odd time. And that's kind of how mine, yeah, that's sort of how mine were. And they, um, we tried to force fetch the first one and he was a total stud. Like he was a bird finding machine. He was a really good dog, but he was, <clears throat> he was just a stubborn, stubborn, stubborn dog. And we were working with a trainer to force fetch him. And in hindsight, like I didn't know enough to know that uh, it just didn't, the, the process of force, force fetching him was really grim. He just didn't want to do it. And the, what, the degree of pressure that he required to, to, to sort of bend to the will of the trainer, it just, we were both like, you know, whatever, if he'll point dead, if he'll find, you know, he would find dead birds, he'd, he'd point them dead or he'd at least indicate where they were and he'd chase down cripples. I was like, I can, I can walk over and pick them up. Like, I don't need to, you know, we were yeah, yeah. times so that, that it limited like what we could do hunt test wise, but it just came to a point of like, I, I'm getting a lot out of this dog and he's working really hard for me and, and I could push this to the next place, but do I really need to? And in, in the end, I just sort of didn't. We're and, um, in the exact know, same kinda. position. We're like, we don't need her. Like she'll help us find the bird. Like she's a pointing machine. She loves birds. She just wants to like, point, go into the next, find the next. But if we need her to help us find the bird, she can do that a hundred percent. So I didn't right. think it was worth doing the force fetch. I don't know. They say Britneys are sensitive dogs. So I just, of course I would love her to retrieve every bird, but that goes to the point of running two together. We've gone out with the friends labs before and we felt like they worked yeah. so good together. North was out front and she's pointing, she's ranging hard and the labs just staying in close and then retrieving. So they made it, she made a really good team with, there was two different labs she's hunted with and yeah, they seem to work really well together. I found. I just don't think labs, yeah, and, labs think and fishing you... don't mix though. That's the only thing. 
<laughs> well, that's, uh, I don't know if Springer's in fishing mix. Our older one loves to swim. Like you can't get them out of the water. So, you know, a few times we put them in the boat, we used to have a little, um, you know, raft like with a fishing frame. We used to float river slot and, uh, that dog would just, you know, he'd, he'd jump out and just swim like the whole time. And it was just a fiasco trying to like wrangle him, get him not tangled up in your rigs. Obviously he's like messing up any drift. It was, it was too much. So we, um, yeah, I think, you know, I've definitely seen it work really well, whether you have the flush or heel or whether you just let them work close and they know to work close. And I think some dogs just, they just have that stickiness. Like some flushers will just never get outside at 25 yards. And that's, that's a beautiful thing. And I think if you instill that in them and create that as like the nature of, of the job, then by all means, you know, let them rip. And definitely there's times when a, when a big running pointing dog will run past, you know, a tight holding bird. And then you, you know, you get those birds up with your flusher and it all works out well. And, you know, the Perkins is all when they hunt upland on the prairies, or wherever they usually have a lab at um like at heel and what they'll do is when the pointing dogs go on point they'll just sit the lab you know leave leave the lab back wherever the point you know before where the point was established walk up flush the bird shoot the bird and then release the lab from from you know his his hub position or his sitting position or hers and they'll go off and pick up and like it works awesome you know because they they have a dog they know is going to gonna hunt cripples, chase down cripples, get in the water if they need to, and, and really find those um those dead birds. But uh, but they don't have to rely on the the players to do it, and it works well. But they you know they put a lot of reps into and and are pretty pretty dialed on what they want out of their dogs. So uh, I can say back to Britneys. Um, what, how were your Britneys yeah. around water? Like were they? reluctant to go in the water you know to retrieve birds or during fishing you know sessions like how were they yeah they were trying to think of our first one they swam they both swam but like kind of didn't love it you know sort of like half-hearted um they would get in the water to pick stuff up sort of but not again not like really hard charging it was kind of like a if it happened they would do it if not they wouldn't and they were pretty good in boats um you know they were trying to think about our first one if we ever really had him in a boat very much i know we did but it wasn't like a regular routine you know and he was he was wound wound up pretty tight like he was a he was a machine and uh our guy we have now who's really old um he was just always like a couch potato anyway. So he, he just, he enjoyed the creature comfort. So if you, you know, if you put him in a, in a boat and he was cozy and, and whatever, like that was fine, but he was a bigger Brittany. He was probably, he was probably like as a fit, you know, kind of middle-aged dog. He was still like pushing 50 pounds. Oh, and, wow. wow that's, you know, in yeah. a canoe, like I, I, yeah. So like I, you know, in a canoe particularly, um, 50 pounds kind of jostling around looking around it's a little like unnerving you know it's like oh can you stay in one place and he was he was a little clumsy and whatever else but uh but yeah they weren't uh, they weren't real gravitate they didn't gravitate heavily towards water i wouldn't say but they they did it you know, see this is why i feel like the Brittany is like a good fishing slash hunting dog because 
you can bring them fishing and they're not plowing towards the the water and scaring all the fish. So, but yeah, yeah. They, then they are a little. Yeah, reluctant. we lucked, we lucked out with that for sure because we didn't like we knew we so we we tried to hunt a whole year without without a dog, which yeah, I'm sure you've tried to do that before in the past, and that's that's oh yeah yeah that's you know difficult well, fortitude well, is like is the, is the I think the only real description of it. That's something you must have, right? Yeah. Um, and, well, but especially where you guys are, I mean, you're, you're looking at massive pieces of ground. I mean, I can't imagine like where we are, at least it's, you know, it's all fairly concentrated. Like you can look at a piece of ground and say like, Oh, okay. That's a small patch. That's got good grass cover. I'm going to walk through there and you might kick up a bird. You might not, but like where you guys are, I mean, it's like looking out at the, the great abyss and being like, uh, it's, <laughs> like, cast, it's like casting a dry fly like, into a lake. You're like, well, they're exactly. rising out there. You know what I mean? It's like, good luck. Right, Throw right. that dry fly out there. We tried sit there all day long. We tried yeah. so hard. We we were out there for hours. Like I remember being like over eight hours one day, like closer to 12, like, and we didn't even kick up a bird. Like it, right. it, it was difficult. Just didn't know any, know any better. So then we decided, well, we're going to go and get a bird dog. And, and uh, we didn't. I was like, I'll just teach her not to go in the water. That was my plan <laughs> beforehand. But, right. but we just locked out. Like, she'll swim. She'll cross the river. And then when it's hot outside, she'll go in the water, all that kind of stuff. But, like, if... Yeah. If... Even if you're catching a fish, she's not... Come, like, I have to be like, come have a look north. Like, yeah, she's... Yeah. yeah, she's not super interested in the water or even frolicking in the water. It has to be pretty hot. So, she's, like, the perfect fishing dog and... A Pretty darn good hunting dog, I yeah, think, too. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. How did you guys wind up with a Brittany? Like, what was the pathway to Brittany's for you? Well, I'd have to say that um, a big, big portion of it was size. Well, what happened was that we would go out and, like, we were super lucky. Um, as you had mentioned before, like, with your wife, like, a mentor is so important, like, for fishing, for mm. hunting, for anything, right? Like, you know, I'm sure you've walked past rivers and seen people fish and you're like, all that person needs is like 10 minutes, right? Like just 10 minutes with somebody that knows what they're doing. And like, you'll, they'll increase their catch rate, like a ridiculous amount. And it's the same with like birds. Like if you just have like one afternoon with the hunter, like he's going to show you so much. You're going to learn so much. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if you can't, you can't find somebody to do it for free, like pay somebody to do it, like go on a guide or, or whatever. Right. But but right. we would go out all the times so we we hunted with labs. We this one guy took her took us out. We met him in the parking lot, and he took us out at like a had, release site. Yeah, he had like a cocker spaniel, and we told we had told him that we had been out. We're like, yeah, we were already out for like eight hours. That was that day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're like, we didn't see. And he's like, he's like, you guys are going back out. He's like, come with me. He's like, I'm going mostly just to run my dog. Like. Come on, I'll show you what it's like to hunt over a dog. Yeah. And so that was the first time. Yeah. yeah. And then we saw we saw somebody with a Brittany and we're like, oh, this is a, I don't know. We just, we liked it a ton, right? So that was kind of like, yeah. we were like, oh, this is a, this is a nice sized dog, right? Like 
we like the look of the dog, all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of what you decide on a Brittany, but you, you can and, talk about and, how you. And also we wanted, uh, definitely wanted to get a pointer cause we were so new to the sport and shooting and we didn't feel like we were a very good shot. So we're like a pointer is going to alert us and give us a little bit of time to get up on the bird and know it's coming as opposed to like a flusher. But I kind of know now that like a flusher does alert you in a way you can tell by their body language, they get birdie and and you right. can tell, but we were like a pointer is going to tell us, you know, ahead of time. So yeah, those were some of the yeah. the key factors. Yeah. For picking Brittany, yeah. for size yeah. pointer and they're available around here. There's some really good breeders around here. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're pretty. Actually, I think you went hunting by where we got her. Didn't you go up to Dave Brown's place in Saskatchewan? Yeah, in in Cabri, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he bought that piece of property up there um, because he had been up in that area getting his Britneys from where we got north from. So, yeah, she. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's, and there's quite a few good breeders around here. So it just seemed like the obvious good choice for us so and it worked out so we're pretty happy yeah um have you yeah they're awesome dogs and i I, go go ahead go ahead nope go ahead (laughs) you guys are too polite (laughs) (laughs) i know right it's like it's like we're both canadian almost um (laughs) i what was i gonna say oh um about britney's just the size thing that was really a key thing for me too because they present they present like a big dog, you know, you just, you don't think of them as like a small dog. And for whatever reason at the time that like meant something to me, Oh, I don't want to have a small dog. And I've sort of come full circle on that, but you can still, you know, a 40 pound Brittany, you can pick them up and chuck them over a fence. You can put them under your arm. You can, you know, they're not, they're very manageable. And yet they have the, they, they just, they're a great size dog. It's like the perfect size dog for most anything um in my experience I think. traveling for sure definitely traveling north, in and out of the north is really small yeah. too she's uh i weighed her the other day she's 36 pounds so she's she's pretty small Brittany. and yeah just packability yeah. like it's just she can curl up in a little ball she's so small too and the size just i've yeah, seen people and- take put their backs out with like dogs if they're like walking in their bigger dog and like a rabbit runs by and the dog just take like tries to take off they like hurt their arm or their back right right yeah no and they also seem to have a degree of um what i always liked about them is they they lacked that um i don't want to say clumsiness but you know like a bigger dog often i often get the feeling they just don't and this may be a misperception. It's probably not fair to say, but you know, I've known a lot of bigger, like uh, like GSPs or wire hairs or jaw or whatever, that just don't have a great sense of their body in space. So, like having them in a house or having them in a car, they're kind of just like you know, all over you or all flopping all over everything. And uh, Britneys, I feel like have a little bit of a delicacy about them. Like they kind of and they're, they're agile. Nimble. They they're they, very they, agile. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I like that for sure. They're a very tidy dog. I feel like, I don't, and I don't think they shed too much either. Like in my experience, they're not a hypoallergenic dog or anything like that. But the amount of hair coming off her in the house is very limited. For sure, for Definitely. for us. Yeah, you know, 
The other thing that I found with ours and our old guy now, it's almost like not fair to use him as a basis for comparison because he's got all the classic like old dog things, you know, where he's lumpy and like he 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 sheds like in big kind of clumps. So he's you know he's kind of he's late in late. He's an old, he's fifteen years old. He's kind of doing what an old dog does. But uh, the thing that I found um, remarkable about our Britneys when and sprinters are somewhat like this too, though their hair's a little bit different. They would like self-clean. It was crazy. Uh, like our Britneys would be out and get covered in mud and just like gunk and whatever else. And they'd dry off and like half an hour later, they're, they look like brand new. Mm-hmm. You know, it's crazy. It's like they just, rem- some something about the quality of their hair, their fur, like it just seemed to not really retain dirt, which I thought was just kind of cool. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. We just, we, we, just, like we a, just put clean like a yeah, we just put the Brittany, uh, our Brittany, Brittany. Brittany, we put North in the in the kennel on the way home, right in the in, in the truck, and uh, and by the time we get home, you just she comes out and you're like, oh, she's clean. Like you're not like, oh, I gotta wash yeah. the dog or anything like that. As long as like as long as the trip's about a half an hour long, just like you said, right? Like all of a sudden you have this clean dog when you get home. And yeah. and for burrs, she only gets the burrs in her ears, and then maybe she because her hair is pretty short. Some Britneys will have like longer hair underneath, like the apron they call it, I believe. Mm-hmm. But she doesn't have that, so yeah. she does. She only gets the burrs in her ears, so that's limited. But I know some. Uh, Do you dogs. have any burr tips, by the way? Yeah, of getting the burrs out. <laughs> that's been yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I I'm I've become a big believer again though I don't do this as much as I should I, is just shave shave those hairy places <laughs> like yeah, you hope yeah. for the best birds are brutal oh yeah because when it gets like all knotted in there and they're sort of feathers you know around their their uh like like on their hind you know hindquarters or like under their ears or like around there so so the kennel that I got our Britneys from they did dual uh they were like show, they did a lot of showing as well, um, which I always thought was whatever, you know, is what it is. But they would keep their dogs really well, um, sh- like shaved, like really, really tight kind of hair on them. So, um, so I sort of did that just to kind of follow more just from a practical standpoint of like, let's keep it, let's keep the, the hair down. Cause we have a lot of birds around here. And, and once they get into them, you're shaving them anyway. So you but, cut, yeah. you cut the hair yourself? I did at times, not regularly, but I would just sort of anywhere that looked like it was going to catch a lot of <laughs> a lot of debris, I'd sort of trim it, trim it down, and then oftentimes they'd get birds, and I'd have to cut them out anyway. So it just sort of wound up being they always had like a like a funky haircut going on. But the the <laughs> woman that that sold me our first Brittany, she was adamant. She's like, I never want to see this dog with like long hair on its tail like you know when they get their their you know they have dock tails but the the hair gets like sort of long and sort of like past the feet yeah. and she's like oh, i hate that and so i always was cautious about keeping that close and then um the other one she always would give me give me problems about was um if their ears like the tops of the hair on the tops of their ears if it got real like stringy she's like oh that's not you have to you always need to cut a britney's hair to follow the contour of the ear and I was like, okay. <laughs> so I, i'm pretty good about keeping the the contours of the ear intact uh-huh. on the o- on the off chance and you you run into your breeder yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't do, right? I, I yeah. don't mess with the ears i do the feathers on the back and front uh, and you know i've tried to i put a lot of care into it making it look good not like 
it's been like a hack job. So, uh, yeah, grooming your dog is, uh, you know, a task. And I feel like Brittany's are, it, it's moderate, the amount of grooming yeah, that has to go for in. Sure, right. Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, so, for sure. For sure. Uh, so have you got to travel lately in the last couple of years? Like obviously probably the first year you didn't. So have you got to travel at all in like the last year or so? Yeah, a little bit. It's kind of been in fits and starts. It's been weird. And, um, and my relationship, I would say, with traveling has changed a little bit in that I, I um, you know, I, I, in a normal year, I travel quite a bit. And I generally say that I'm gone, call it like five days a month on a normal year. And of course, that's, you know, that's concentrated in certain seasons. It's less in other seasons. But, you know, it averages out to about that. Um, and there's more travel I can do. But I increasingly, I have two kids that are getting older and, you know, being away from home is, it's hard. Like I, I miss them a lot and COVID's definitely just changed the rhythm of our life and my, um, just my desire, I think in some ways to be out on the road. I love to travel, but I just miss home a lot when mm-hmm. I'm gone. And the other thing that's really hard for me lately with COVID particularly, I, you guys probably experienced this, that, uh, like nothing, nothing goes according to plan. Like flights get canceled things get delayed, things get lost, things get, and so the, when, when, when life was a little more normal and consistent and I could say, okay, I'm going to be gone on a Monday morning and I'm going to be home on a Friday night. You know, now it's like almost without fail one end or the other of that is going to get messed up. And so all of a sudden you, that weekend thing you had with your family, you're not there because your food's canceled and you got to figure that out. And the other thing that's been really hard for me, and I'm, I'm, I will answer your question eventually, <laughs> is, uh, um, is, you know, when I travel a lot for work, it's often going to like to a lodge in a rural place, you know, so Sam in rural South Dakota and with COVID um, when it was, and I think we're going in a better direction now, but like, I had a lot of anxiety about, you know, if I'm at a destination in a lodge with a bunch of people and all of a sudden I get sick and I'm in like the middle of nowhere, South Dakota, what do I do? Like I, do I get a motel room and just like stay there till I'm well? I, if there's not, I, it just made me really like aware in a way that I've never been aware of. Like what, what do I need to be thinking about in the event that something goes not according to plan? So so there was a level of anxiety around travel that I think I didn't have before that made it a little less fun. But certainly I've gotten my um gotten my licks in over the last couple of years. Like this year I was in Nebraska uh a bit, South Dakota a bit, um, Texas a bit, uh up in New you know, different parts of New England, um, a fair bit, did a swing down through Virginia. Uh, Pennsylvania. So, you know, I, I got around not in the same way that I typically do, but uh, I got a little bit of fishing travel in too, which is good. Hosted a trip down to Belize last summer. That was awesome. Um, Where did you go in Belize? And uh, we, I did one of the trips that Orvis does to, um, to uh, El Pescador down in, in like San Pedro, Ambergris uh, uh-huh. Key, more or less. So, uh, and that was a host, you know, it was a gig job deal, but I got to fish a bit and just be with great clients and, you know, be in the sunshine for a while. So I, I do, I have traveled, but I, I feel as though once, I mean, I say this, I think we've all been saying this for like two and a half years, but it, you know, when, when a sense of normalcy returns around just um, 
some of the some of the safety stuff, some of the um, you know just staffing, like staffing of flights. You know, making sure that there's enough captains to fly the planes that you're not getting. Mm-hmm. You know, I think when when stuff sort of re- normalizes a bit in that front, I'll be traveling a bunch more again, and uh, yeah, just getting out and about. You know, it's been it's been too long since I've just been with some of the people that I work with close to have relationships with um, and seeing what they're doing and yeah, stuff changes and destinations change and they have different needs and wants from me in terms of what I can provide them with for feedback. So I think next year will be a pretty busy year, but my elder daughter, older daughter is going to be a senior in high school next year. So, you know, it's kind of this, this push pull of, of the fall, especially I love, I love being out there and love hunting and love going to different places. But, you know, to know that I have a kid who's back home is probably going to be going off to college in a year and won't be living at home, you know, forever. There is like a, a, there's a little tension there that I, that I feel Um, not tension, like from my family, just like my heart hurts when I'm away. (laughs) And you you have to be there to be doing your uh, training for your dog too, right? Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. That's the other thing. And that's, you know, that, but that's a really good point. Like it's hard to, I do have, I was just thinking about this. I was just down in Texas and I was hunting with these guys that had really nice dogs and, they had uh, some flushers, some cockers that they were working behind uh, pointing dogs. And, and just a note, we shot a lot of birds, you know, it was, it was good. There's a lot of shooting and a lot of opportunities. And I was just looking at like the rep those dogs were getting in and, and just like, this is cool, you know, that I'm here doing this and I love seeing it happen, but this, I'm not doing this with my dog. Like I want, I wish my dog was getting these reps in. I wish my dog was, you know, here to see this. And, uh, and so it's, it's as much as I love, um, being out there and seeing other people's dogs work and, and enjoying being with a lot of different dogs when they're not my dog, I feel kind of guilty. You know, it's like, what am I doing? Have like, ever, why am I not putting these kinds of things? Have you ever thought of like traveling with your animals at all? Yeah. And if, I haven't done it a lot and I should do, if I can get Lulu where I want her to be this year, I think I'm going to try to do it a little bit more. Flying with them is problematic. Wiley, our, our middle sized Brittany flew, or sorry, Springer. Um, he traveled with my wife a little bit. He went out to Montana once or twice, but I remember one time, like the, um, you know, the flight, like it, it, there's certain temperature regulations, like mm-hmm. they won't let you fly, you know, at certain temperatures or if the weather's going to do certain stuff. And so, you know, she got on a flight and like couldn't get on. And then we had to figure that out. So it's, there's anxiety there too. But, um, and where I live, a lot of the destinations that I work with are pretty far away. They're in this, you know, several days drive away. So it's a little bit harder for mm-hmm. me to do, but, um, but yeah, I intend to, I'd like to get little Lulu out and, and, uh, there's certainly some stuff I can do in new England work-wise that I can bring her with and, um, a couple other places, but, uh, yeah, it's on the horizon. She just needs to, I need to make sure she's not going to embarrass me. That's the big thing. Got to get her there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so working at Orvis, you've had an opportunity to go to a lot of places and experience the fishing and hunting cultures in all these places, whether it's in the United States or abroad. Um, do you have a favorite trip or more, most memorable trip that you, you know, good or bad, good or bad, <laughs> that you want to share with us? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I really do 
I mean, I feel as though, um, how to explain this? I love hunting wild birds. Like, um, and I, and I can again, recognize that, that I have an incredible opportunity just with the work I do to, to pick and choose. I can, you know, in a normal year, I, I, I hunt and shoot like far more than I could ever possibly afford to on my own or that many people get to. So like, I fully recognize the, the opportunity that I have and the privilege that I have on that front. Um, so when I think about what I love to do the most, I mean, I have to preface it by saying like, I just feel so grateful for the opportunities that I've had across the board, you know, and then to, to get a little more granular and say, what do I love? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm a sucker for rough grouse and woodcock, and I love hunting rough grouse and woodcock, and there are people that I love to do it with and places that I love to do it. So I've been out a bunch of times to um, hunt with, uh, I guess this isn't woodcock, but to hunt with um, uh, Tim and Joanne Lanahan in the Yak Valley up in northwest Montana, which is just, just a special place that, again, you know, when I was young and reading more than I read now and, and sort of dreaming about the places that are out there that I never thought I would see. The Yak was a place that several writers wrote about. Rick Bass lived there. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, but he wrote about the Yak extensively. And, um, uh, oh, what's his name? He wrote The Sporting Road. Um, Fergus, Jim Fergus wrote about the Yak a little bit. Uh, other people have written about it. So it was always this place in my head that, that was very romantic and sort of mystical and, getting out there, um, you know, it's a three bird limit, forest grouse, spruce grouse, rough grouse, and blue grouse. And so it's not like you're going and stacking them up, you know, but it's really wild remote country and just, um, just, just great people. Tim and Joanne are awesome. Um, just love being with them and they, they feel like family to me and they're just great friends. Uh, but grouse and woodcock in the upper Midwest, there's a couple guys out there that I love desert quail. I love not so much, you know, everyone loves, to talk about Mern's quail these days. And Mern's quail are a phenomenal bird, really tight holding bird for a pointing dog. But I love those running desert quail. So California Valley quail gambles and uh and scalies that run in these big coveys and kinda kinda you have to sort of keep up with them and the terrain's really cool and the climate in the southwest is awesome. So I love that. Um you know, this will sound so highbrow, but it, I was talking to uh, on my podcast, like I, Johnny Carter, I don't know if you listen to that one, the guy from the UK, but he and I were talking about a day that I had with a colleague here at Order with Andrew Pierce. We were in Scotland and, and um, they do these uh, kind of a kind of quasi driven shoot there, but it's more like you're pushing through a little wood. They call it a ruck shoot or a mini driven where you're kind of pushing birds out, but you're also shooting the birds get up in front. So these old mature bands of, of, of woods where, you know, on these kind of old estates, just super romantic. And we were shooting uh, uh European or yeah, European woodcock and um, you know, kind of whatever got out partridge and pheasants and European woodcock and wood pigeons and whatever was there. But it just had this quality of like, I don't know. It was just cool and, and weird and neat. And I don't know. It just felt like I was somewhere far, far away, but I've had some incredible days. I mean, I, I, I've been very, very lucky. Um, there was a day hunting ptarmigan with a uh, friend, Dan Michaels up in Alaska on the Alaska peninsula. That was just an epic day, you know, 60 miles from the next nearest human. And, they were 60 miles again from the next year's human and like just nothing around. And 
just things like that that I that I go back to is just being special moments, special days where the stars came together and aligned and and um yeah, I don't know. I how, I, I, almost, I, I do have a question about Tarmigan though. It's like we went up to the Yukon, we've been up to Yukon a couple times. We just went up there to mm-hmm. fish for grailing and stuff and this is before we hunted and we keep talking but we have to go back up there because we've flushed all these ptarmigan like just before we started hunting. before yeah. we started hunting right and i'm like we yeah. know where they all are so all we do is just get back up there so like we don't need any directions we kind of have some spots i remember all these places we saw them but how are they uh like as as to eat how are ptarmigan to eat yeah, so tar- it depends what you're into. <laughs> so, um, ptarmigan are very, very, very similar to red grouse, which, of course, like on the on the heather, you know, the moors in Scotland are like the most desirable, probably the most. If you were to quantify it in these terrible terms, like probably the most expensive bird, upland bird to hunt is is driven red grouse in the in the Scottish highlands um actually i have a quick question before just before you go on i have one more quick question so is the red grouse the same as what they refer to as the black grouse no so black grouse are more like a um like a forest grouse like a uh closer to like a capricaile or a um they're big i actually i shouldn't really talk because i don't really know but i've heard people interchangeably talk about capricaile and black grouse but i think black grouse is actually a a smaller than a Capricaile. Capricaile are huge and they're in kind of Lapland, like Northern Scandinavia, parts of Russia. Um, uh, where else? Yeah. And that Northern sort of European tier of Scandinavia. Okay. Um, I think black grouse are slightly different though. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, someone can call in and tell me I'm a liar. So, um, but yeah, so red grouse are like, they're really like a ptarmigan. Um, they don't, I don't believe they change color. I'm pretty sure they don't, but they, they are very similar. So the flesh on both ptarmigan and red grouse is um is dark, much like a sharp tail. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a dark meat versus like a uh um you know blue grouse or a sooty grouse, I guess you'd say, or rough grouse for sure is a much lighter meat. Um so if you like that darker, richer meat, it's it's almost more like duck or something mm-hmm. where you, you cook it rare and you um you yeah, you just don't want to overcook it, but it's got that richness to it. Um they're good. I, you know, I definitely enjoy it. I've only hunted ptarmigan on that one trip and it was for a few days and that's really the only place I've ever eaten them. But, um, yeah, they were, they were good. I love rough grouse. I like the, the light sort of that pink flesh. Um, so that's probably my favorite, but I, I do enjoy the darker, um, darker meat too. Yeah, it's the first, the, probably one of the hardest things. Like when we first, when we first started to cook, um, wild birds is, to accepting not to cook them all the way through, right? Like, you know, yeah. everything in your, everything yeah. you've been taught, like everything I've been taught my whole life, my dad's a chef actually, but everything I've been taught my whole life is like, uh, don't like, like you have to cook, like you have to cook birds all the way through. And then all of a sudden you get these wild birds, they don't contain, um, Salmonella. Salmonella this at is all. So. Darcy's fun fact he tells right, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, wild birds do right, not right. have yeah, yeah. salmonella. Yeah. So then you so you don't have to cook it yeah. all the way through, right? So it's like, so that kind of getting over that. And once you get over that, I think you can kind of t- make anything taste good for sure. Definitely. Yep. I'm oh, a fan of the yeah, I mean, tail, the best. So. so try this. So this is a, this one threw me for a loop, but I was in, um, Montana with a guy at a lodge we work with pro outfitters and they have a chef 
uh, Michael Car- Carlucci, his name. Um, and we were sitting around talking and I was actually working on an article about him. And I was saying how I'd watched, uh, I think I'd watched an episode of meat eater where they were eating, um, mule deer or something like, um, uh, carpaccio essentially with like, what do they call it? Gremolata. It's like, uh, you, you, it's like lemon rind, um, parsley, salt. Boy, I'm terrible. Maybe garlic, raw garlic, but I think it was mostly just like salt, pepper, olive oil, um, parsley and lemon rind. And I was like, Oh, you know, what's your take? I was just talking to this guy. I was like, what's your take on like eating raw meat? And he's like, Oh, you know, I, I like it. It's such a clean, fresh way to do it. And usually if the game handled well, it's, it's not a big deal. You, know, you just got to be a little bit thoughtful about how you handle it. And it's like, I wonder if you can do that with, with birds. Like you look at a dark flesh bird, like a sharp tail, and it's not dissimilar in a lot of its qualities to, you know, to sort of a mammalian, like a, like a piece of bread meat from a deer or a cow or whatever else. And he's like, ah, I don't know. Let's try it. So we, we did a bunch of sharp tail with that gremolata and, um, it was wonderful. It was the, my, the best sharp tail I've ever had. Just like thinly sliced sharp tail breast, raw salt, olive oil, um, lemon zest and parsley. And I think garlic. And, um, it had no, the thing that was so amazing to me was that you got the flavor of it, but it didn't have any, you know, how even, even when you cook sharp tail kind of rare, it's got that little like iron, like like irony or yeah, almost yeah. like um you know that like end there's like a finish that's a little like my dad my dad gamey, described it's like a, I, I so this year i we had got sharp tail and we, we hosted christmas and i got my dad to come over and my dad's a chef and but he had never cooked sharp tail before and my dad didn't, didn't hunt and um or doesn't hunt i should say and uh and he's like he so he, you know he took a little bit just fried it up quickly just to kind of taste it to kind of see what he was going to do with it. And he's like, the thing I can compare it to closely is like liver. He's like, it's that's like the, yeah. that kind of irony taste that you get from liver. Yeah. He's like, it doesn't taste like liver. Yeah. Like it just, but just like you said, it just finishes like liver does. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And what was crazy was when we did it raw, that wasn't there. It was just like a very clean, and I don't know if that's a function of whatever the heat does to the, uh, I don't know what it is, but it, it was, the proteins or if something, you yeah. have something or the, or if there's any, like, you know, whatever the moisture or blood or whatever's in there, um, not that there's blood in the muscle. Well, I guess there's probably, anyway, who knows, but whatever it was, if you get the chance to do it, um, this fall, you know, just with a really fresh bird, just slice it thin, sort of lay it out almost like you would do sashimi or something and, and just sprinkle it with the, the coarse salt, pepper, olive oil, lemon zest, parsley, and it is wonderful. Yeah, I think the best way to look at a sharp tail is like, think of it as like a really good steak. So whatever you do, would you do yeah. with like a, you could do with like a really good piece of beef. I think you could do with sharp tail as well. Yeah. That's the way, yeah. I, that's the way yeah. I kind of no, look at it. No, and people always say, yeah. And I, like, I hear, like, if you're grilling them or searing them or whatever, and, you know, being really cautious not to overcook them, everyone says, like, oh, you'll, the way to ruin a duck or the way to ruin a, um, the way to ruin a sharp tail is to overcook it. And I get it. But at the same time, like, I've done a lot of sharp tails in the slow cooker and made 
tacos, you know, kind of let them, let them basically, uh, braise and then shred the meat and do tacos and stuff like that. And that's really good. Or, uh, even with ducks, like we do a duck, I actually pulled out ducks today to do this for tomorrow night. Um, where you, you can either slow roast them or you can put them in the, in like the crock pot slow cooker and you, you essentially overcook them, but then you, you can shred them and make like a, um, they come with a ragu, like a, like a really meaty, um, uh, you know, tomato based sauce for pasta or something like that, which we do a lot. Uh, and, you know, again, you would look at that and say, well, I'm way over cooking these birds for hours, but the, the finished product, if you, if you kind of round it out, right. And I'm not, I like to cook a lot, but I'm not a chef by any means. Um, but it, yeah, it works for whatever reason. It's really, really good. So another one. Is, did you, did your, do your kids eat all the wild game you cook? Oh yeah. They have some that they like better than others. I shot a mule deer a few years ago and they weren't so into that. <laughs> they were like, this is too, they thought it was like goatee, you know, cause they grew up on a farm, right? So they ate all kinds of weird stuff. And, and, uh, they definitely, um, there was one year where we had a, this is kind of a funny story. We had a ram, a breeder ram, uh, for a sheep flock that we, he got old and we, slaughtered him and ground him up largely for it's probably bad to say but it was largely for you know there were some cuts that we were going to keep for human consumption but the the different people on the farm working on the farm about dogs we were just going to use it as uh, to make to make like homemade dog food and um and somehow we like mislabeled this this package of ground old ram um and made like something made like meatballs out of it or something like that and it was potent it was like it smelled strong and it was just like strong that like real like muttony lamby flavor and my kids like still talking about that they're like you fed us you fed us dog food you fed us like the oldest sheep in all the land you know and uh so so they have their their little things that they hang on to but by and large like they'll eat, they don't love the more um you know they love kind of a yeah they're pretty much up for anything like we we fed them they're they've always been pretty good eaters but if i guess if i were to say what they really like um bird wise they love it when we do uh they call them bird balls which is sort of funny but it's like basically poppers you know if you take take a little breast of whatever open bird and you know put a little cream cheese maybe a little pepper of some sort whether you like spicy peppers or not put in the middle wrap it all in bacon throw it on the grill like it's pretty it's hard not to love something cooked like that and we'll do like um uh you know what they really like actually is i've tried to be better about keeping the legs of the ducks that i shoot and do like a um kind of almost create a uh like a confit type thing and do do that like sticky fatty salty kind of kind of that sticky quality they like a lot um if it's really rich and so we do that a fair bit and uh yeah, but they're they're pretty solid. They'll they'll eat most of them. I'm trying to think. There's, they don't love woodcock, but we've never tried woodcock before, so I wouldn't. I don't know what that tastes, but I do know that Darcy's mom was the one who was reluctant to eat uh, game birds that we were serving, but she she definitely was yeah. willing to eat the the poppers. Yeah, yeah, the pop, you can't yeah. you can't go oh, yeah. wrong. Yeah. If someone doesn't want to eat game, you just put bacon really on can't. it. 
Yeah. Yeah. Cream cheese. Yeah. They're yeah, like, totally. yeah, give yeah. me another one of those, please. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a pretty solid, solid crowd pleaser. Yeah, they're like, she's time. like, I really like the partridge. It's like, no, you really like the cream cheese, the jalapeno, and the bacon. The partridge <laughs> right. is just part of the, <laughs> just part of the mix right. there for sure. I Definitely. will say though, the, the vehicle at, at Christmas time we had uh, sharp tail and we had turkey yep. and all the sharp tail was gone. There was plenty of turkey left. The, the preference was sharp tail. So for sure, yeah, yeah. we were we were yeah. pretty proud of that because yeah. yeah. like. Darcy's like, I killed this, and now we're eating it. I'm feeding my family, so he was pretty, yeah, pretty proud. So Uh, I'll tell you, this is a funny story. The first Canada goose I ever shot, um, I'd been, and this was just me in college being an idiot and trying to shoot a goose and like being unsuccessful. I finally killed one, and I was so proud. And I plucked it, and I took such good care of it, and I brought it home and I cooked it for Christmas dinner like roast, you know, I wanted to do the classic, like whole roast goose. And, um, and it was awful. I mean, it was just so bad. And I remember like my whole family just being like, why did we let him talk us into this? And, uh, that, that one didn't go over so well, but I still struggle with Canada. I was goose in general. Speckle belly is pretty good, but, um, Canada's, I just, I want to like him. And there are a few preparations that are, that are good, but I, you know, and I eat everything I shoot or I try to, you know, some, uh, at least, you know, sometimes I share it, give it away, but I try to, I try to hold myself very much accountable to like, you know, cause oftentimes like if you go travel somewhere and you're flying in and out or whatever, and you shoot some birds and it's hard, it's not always easy logistically to get them home. So I try to really be diligent cause I love to eat game. I'd rather only eat game. So I try to bring stuff home, but I've had opportunities here and there to shoot canada's and i do eat them but um i wouldn't say like if someone if someone you know invited me to like fill my freezer with canada geese i would i think politely say that i was busy that week yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. well they get a bad they get a really bad rap too right as they're, they're like you know greasy geese or or whatever like people like to call them and i i shot my first one last year I got a couple of them and yeah. I was lucky enough. This guy took me out. And I was like, this is after going, you know, for pheasants and huns. And I was like, this is so easy. You just sit here. And they just like, they just kept coming in and coming <laughs> they in. I'm like, they would move from, yeah. he'd start calling them and they'd be like, you know, a couple miles away. And I'm like, they're turning. They're actually coming towards us. I, like right. I couldn't believe it the first time I saw it happen. And then, so I was lucky yeah. enough to get a few of them. A friend of mine that actually invited me was, his gun kept jamming when he was up there. So he was so upset, and, but I was so happy, you know, I was like, I was like, it's probably twice as bad this whole experience for him. But right. anyways, and, um, so we brought him home and I kind and I, and you know, I, 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 I uh, broke him down and I looked at the meat and I was like, you know, and then we looked online. No, 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 I, I did that part. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Timber's an expert at cleaning them, at cleaning the birds. But yeah. So, we were looking at him and we were like, um, like, I don't know what to do with these. You know, I had no idea. And then put them in the freezer for a couple of months and yep. we're like, we got to do something with right. them. Yeah. So we got to do something with All them. Right. So, um, have you ever heard of ginger fried beef before? It's a, it's yeah. actually invented uh-huh. in Calgary. It's so, like a Chinese restaurant. They serve it. Yeah. But it's actually was invented in Calgary. So it was in, it's, uh, there, there's a Chinese food restaurant in downtown Calgary and they, and they came up with the recipe in like the eighties. And now like, if you go anywhere in Western Canada, it's like in every Chinese food restaurant. 
So I was like, huh. and my dad had this recipe, right? It's this ginger fried beef recipe. And so I, I was like, oh, I'm just gonna, I'll just cut it into strips and make ginger fried beef. And like, if, if I served it to people, like there's no way. It's so good. It's like ginger and garlic really? and sugar and you know what I mean? Like it's all the things that are wonderful in the world <laughs> it's so right, right. and well, fried as well. So when we, ran out, when we ran out of goose, I was like, oh no, we can't have that anymore because it's like bad for you. So it was kind of like a treat, right. and, yeah. uh, but so good. Right. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, I'll send yeah. you the recipe and, and you, you can try it. You can try it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll do that. And the other way that I've, I've, we have a friend here, um, in who actually his wife works for us with me and, uh, he has a restaurant in town and he's done, um, uh, like a pastrami, like goose pastrami. So I don't know what he, I guess he cures it and then maybe smokes it. And that's really good. And you serve, you know, again, thin slice, serve it like on a charcuterie board, whatever. And, uh, that's really, really nice. But I have, and I've seen recipes for it. I haven't actually made it myself, but that's another, another good one. Um, I wonder, goose, if, you but could, I wonder does, if you could corn it, like, like, you know how you like, like corn, corn beef. I wonder if you could do that corn same beef, process. Yeah. Cause I've had corned mousse before and that was like amazing. Mm-hmm. It yeah. mousse is so lean, but I bet you could. I mean, I don't know why you wouldn't be able to, right? Yeah. But, I bet you it would work as well. Huh? Yeah. The thing that freaks me out a little bit about geese around here anyway, like you're in a more agricultural sort of flyaway, but like where we are on the Eastern, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say we're really on a flyaway, but, um, you know, we have a lot of geese that don't really migrate anymore. And they spend a lot of time on golf courses and a lot of time on sort of industrial like lawn areas. And I just, I always wonder, and I don't know if anyone's done a study on this, but you have to assume they're eating a lot of, weird garbage fertilizer grass and yeah and just like i can't help but think some of that accumulates somewhere and uh so i'm always a little leery about geese i don't know why the 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 can of geese that i that i hunted so we i hunted them in december and the majority of the geese that are around Mm -hmm. here in december are like our resident geese so they're right so they're living majority of the winter not all of them. There's a mix of them in, in December, but a lot of them are ones that are like, so we have our, our sewage treatment plants. They dump into the Bow River, the tailwater. It doesn't freeze. Right. right? So right. they right. live in, right. they live in on the Bow River. Right. So they spend all right. night on the Bow River. They're going out and flying out, flying out and, and feeding in the farmer's fields during the day. But, but, they're in that river. And if you ask me to eat a trout out of the river, yeah. like I, uh, no way. Right. Like I'm not going to, right. you're right. not allowed to, and nor would I. Right. Yeah. But that's, yeah. it's a really, it's a great sewage treatment plan. Like the affluent that comes out is fantastic. It makes a, for a great fishery. It increases all the, uh, you know, the food available to the fish, but, but I didn't have any problem. Um, eating the goose. Eating the goose. Plus, right. I, plus right. I always think yeah. they're kind of the most annoying bird out there. Right, and they happen to have the Canadian right. name on it, so it's just like always a bit. Right. <laughs> so yeah. What are those things? That's funny. Yeah, no, I I think about that more than I should, but uh, I don't know. Who knows? It's probably fine. Yeah, well, if you think of all the things we eat and the water we drink, a lot of the times it probably is not going to make that much of a difference. But 
yeah, I'm sure yeah, there. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure somebody has studied like um, if there's any toxins in in Canada geese. Definitely. Yeah. I'm sure, if you looked hard I enough, you could find so. something. Yeah, yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Regardless, they're super mm-hmm. annoying. So if you less of them, it's, it's not bad. <laughs> but you know, you always want to eat what you kill, right. and, and we found a, a good way to consume them. So yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, you'll have to definitely send me that recipe. I'll try that out. I will for sure. Um, all right. Um, oh, we've been talking for well over an hour and a half now. So this is probably a, a great time to end it. Um, we'll definitely have to have well, you on again. Reed? If you're willing to, <laughs> yeah, if you're willing to. Oh yeah, no, I love it, and I love um, I love what you guys are doing, and I love too that you, uh, yeah, I just love that you found this this. Um, it's always really interesting to me to to talk to people who find a passion that they weren't expecting to find, you know, at whatever sort of point along their journey, and and um, you know, I do, I have, I've been benefited from that and kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast that I think if you if you just kind of keep keep yourself open to to new things and trying new things and and letting new things kind of come into your life and occupy your 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 passions and interests and whatever else it's um it's just inspiring to hear that because I think I think sometimes people feel as though oh I you know if I didn't do this thing growing up whether, you know, fishing or hunting, good examples, but anything, you know, if, if you feel like you didn't do this thing from the get go, then you don't really ever have access to it. But, uh, but if you, if you do believe that you can figure out a way and then just follow your passions, you know, it's, it's cool to hear stories of people being motivated by that and being rewarded by it just in, in their experience. So I, I applaud you guys for, for, yeah, just being, being open to new things and doing what you're doing and, getting good at it and probably having a way better dog than my dog <laughs> it sounds like you probably do uh, but uh but all of the above it's very cool that you're doing it and i appreciate you having me on thank you so much reed and thank you for saying that uh, it's uh, it's always important to remember and just don't afraid to try right the worst that can happen is yeah, yeah. you'll get better the next time all right thanks have a good <laughs> evening thanks you as well bye-bye